0: Standing while I pray, and pray along with me. Father God, I just thank you, Lord, for um, the beautiful place that you have gathered us here. And it is beautiful because you are in our midst, because we are here and you are in us. And so, Lord, I thank you for um, just the expression of the gospel that we've already seen here. I pray today that as we continue to worship you in the Word, that it would do its work in our lives. That the the Spirit of God would take the Word of God and, and apply it to the hearts of the people of God, that we might look like the beautiful image of the Son of God. Lord, I pray that what we do not know, you would teach us, that what we cannot see, you would show us, and that what we are not yet, you would make us for your glory, not for ours, but for yours. Lord, not me, not even Christ in me, Christ alone, that is our prayer, and I pray that it would all be to magnify you in a world that needs to see you, and I pray this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Please have a seat, if you would. I'm going to... I don't know if you guys are aware of this or not, but what we've been doing for the last hour or so is worshiping, right? And, and, and yet, we don't have to come to church to worship. You don't have to be a Christian to worship. You don't even have to be religious to worship. Did you know that every person who's ever lived is made in the image of God, and as such, every person who's ever lived is a worshiper, like, everybody is worshiping. All of us in this room, all of us in the world are worshiping. The only question becomes, who and what? Um, Paul, author and pastor Paul Tripp says it this way, As human beings, we have been made by God for God. We are creatures made to worship. The question is, who or what are we worshiping? Pastor and author um, Tim Keller, who went to be with the Lord last year, said it this way, You don't get to decide to worship. Everyone worships something. The only choice you get is what to worship. We are worshipers. Humans are worshipers because we're made in the image of God. And we were made to worship him. And yet our hearts, because of the brokenness of this world, seem to get dragged into worshiping almost everything but him. And we've talked a lot about that even here already this morning, but we talk about that a lot here at Cross Train. So today what we're going to talk about is we get ready to kind of get back into the Matthew series that we're in that's called the Kingdom of Heaven. I'll, um, Lord willing, I'll be back in Matthew next Sunday. But as we get into that, I wanted to sort of transition and, and refix our minds on kingdom. right? And so the, quest- or the, the, the question I'm asking today is, what, like, what kingdom are you worshiping in and what informs Your worship. In other words, what is it that you're using to even figure out what kingdom you're worshiping in? So how, like what, what, um, what measurements would we even use to figure that out? That's the question becomes what informs our worship, and we're going to do that through a, through a, a section of Old Testament um, scripture that is fairly familiar to some of us, probably one of the best known stories in the histories of the Bible, and that is where Elijah calls fire down on Mount Carmel, but I want to do it from a place of worship. So to help us sort of set the tone, like in your own heart, because this is not just an old history story, this is a story of worship for all of us, and oh, by the way, I I need to make sure we understand this, guys, worship and music are not the same thing. Music is worship, but worship is more than that. Worship, when we talk about that here, the way we define worship is anytime you are set, whatever you are setting your mind's attention and heart's affection on, that's worship. So, it can, so, it, so you can be doing anything and be worshiping the Lord if your mind's attention and heart's affection is on him. You can also, anytime you set your mind's attention and heart's affection on something or someone else, you are now worshiping that something or someone. So here's a question just to sort of set the mood. It's your first talking points question. I'm not going to ask for answers out loud. What amount of your angst, anger, anxiety... How much of your energy and effort, what part of your time, talent, or treasure has any kingdom of God significance whatsoever? What amount of your angst, anger and anxiety, how much of your energy and effort, what part of your time, talent, and treasure has any kingdom of God significance whatsoever? In other words, to just bring it like all the way down to shoe leather. Guys, think like in your thought life, in your in your day planner, in your in just how you spend your 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 how you're spending your life, time is the most precious commodity we have because we don't get any more of it than the number of days God has given us. We can't, and I don't care about all these longevity studies, got your days or ordained for you before there was yet not one, you can take all the pills in the world to help you live longer, and God is still going to call you home the day he calls you home, right? And so what we need to do is understand, that in that context, how much of what we're spending that most precious commodity on has anything to do with kingdom-mindedness? And if, and if the answer, honestly, if we sit back and we say, the answer is very little, then the question starts to become, do we even believe any of this? Meaning, do we really believe that Jesus is king and that he has come to establish his kingdom here on earth? Like, if we really believe that, shouldn't that change how we spend our time? Like, shouldn't we look, and I'm not talking morality here, but shouldn't we look, shouldn't our lives look distinctly different from our unsaved or even our nominally confessing, meaning people that say they're Christians but are not? I don't know who they are. You can't judge their heart. But shouldn't our lives look so much different from theirs? And the answer is yeah. But the reality is no. And it's because we are a people that have a real perspective problem, as my friend Jesse reminded me of many years ago. Guys, what we're going to look at in this, in this passage that, that many of you have seen before, many of you have read before, I've even taught through it here before, probably once or twice, but we're going to look at it from this, this place of worship is we're going to see Elijah shows us in this scene, or God actually shows us um, through, through the life of Elijah, that our worship is informed and thus transformed by our perspective. Bottom line, our perspective. We have a perspective problem, and that perspective impacts the decisions we make, it determines where we place our passions, and it affects how we see the work of God in the world. Like, all of it comes back to perspective. how The decisions we make, our passions, what we're passionate about, what fires us up, and how we see God working or don't see God working is all a perspective issue. And so what we're going to do today is we're an interactive church. Like, it's part of why three-plus years ago now we changed our, we, 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 um, we, we, we change our service flow to, to bring prayer into the service and pass the microphone to make it interactive. The way the music team leads music and, and invites you into singing and responding to verses they read and things to think about during the songs, that's a way to make this interactive. Like, this is not Christianity, including Sunday gathering, by the way, guys, is not a spectator sport. This is not a movie, right? This is not a play. This isn't just come and listen to what's going on. This is for you to participate in. You should walk in those doors, not just going, what is it I'm going to get out of today, but what is it I'm bringing to today? These are my brothers and sisters in Christ. They need me. Just, they don't just need me, Doug, the pastor. They need you because we're all participating in this Together. So today, rather than do communion like we off, like we, like we do almost every Sunday here, every one of you should have gotten a white card when you came in. If you did not get a 3 by 5 white card, um, there are some when we get to the response time at the end, um, or you can just come and get some. There's some on the tables up here, there's some out on the back in the connect table, but you're going to want to grab one, and throughout the message today, part of our responding, part of our interaction is going to be vocally, like I often do, I'll ask a question, ask for input, but other times I'm going to ask you just to write some stuff down on this card so everybody needs one of these and something to write with. And we're going to move through this passage quickly, so don't waste time, but find one round. If you don't have a card, if you don't have something to write with, get one. Right now, get up and do it if you have to. Cards are up here, pens are up here, cards are out there, pens are out there, go. Everybody get one, make sure you've got it. Those of you that already have all that together, find First Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings is in your Old Testament, so that means it's towards the left half of your Bible. If you open up your Bible to the middle, you'll open up to Psalms, Proverbs, something like that. Go back to the left, go past Job. You're going to go past the Chronicles. You're going to get to the Kings. If you get to the Samuels, you've gone too far. So the Kings are between the Samuels and the Chronicles. 1 Kings 18 is the scene we're going to look at. And we're going to look at how is our worship informed? It's, inf- it's informed by our perspective. So I'm going to start in chapter 18, starting in verse... 17. This is when Ahab saw Elijah, he said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your, fa- and your father's house has, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord, and you followed the Baals. Now, guys, I, I, we jumped into the middle of the story. This is a time in Israel's history. Israel are the people of God at this point in the Old Testament story. They were led out of the, out of Egypt in the Exodus. They, they become a kingdom under King David around in the 900 B.C.s. This is now King David passes the torch to King Solomon who builds the temple, which is where God lived on earth in the Old Testament, or his presence was there on earth in the Old Testament. Solomon dies, and his son Rehoboam makes a poor decision that splits the kingdom. Kingdom. And the kingdom of God, which is 12 tribes, becomes 10 northern tribes called Israel and two southern tribes called Jacob. Now, both sets of these, these are still God's people, both sets, the 10 northern and the two southern tribes, ha- are ruled by kings. Now, the, the, like 20-something kings in the north, not a single one of them is worth spit. Like, not a single one of them ever has a good day for God in his entire life. Now, down here in the south, which is where Jerusalem is, there are a few of them, like Josiah and Hezekiah, that that do okay for the Lord, that, that are good kings by an earthly perspective, but even they have their struggles because they're still humans. So what God starts to do at this point in human history, at this point in the Old Testament story, is he raises up prophets. He raises up prophets to get the people of God to get back to focusing on the word of God. And Elijah is one of those prophets. In fact, he is the prototype prophet right? Jesus commends Elijah more than any other of the Old Testament prophets. You would think it would be somebody like Isaiah, because he's got a huge book, or Jeremiah, because his book is rather long too, and pretty stinky ministry, and he wept the whole time. But no, it is Elijah who was considered the archetype of all the prophets. In fact, when, when, John, when, when Jesus says John the Baptist is the greatest of the prophets, it's because he's connecting him to, and we, Elijah, Elijah is a prophet in the north, so he's he's a prophet in the area of God's people where none of their leaders, none of their in our vernacular, none of their presidents are worth a lick. They just aren't. So so God raises up Elijah to go tell these people, like this is what? Why are you following the pagan idolatry of the country you're living in, of the world that you're living in? But this is a perspective issue. Ahab is king not a good king. In fact, he's a horrid king. His wife, Jezebel, is worse. And they're leading God's people. And, and Ahab does not like Elijah. In fact, he wants to kill Elijah. So, so Elijah, God says, you're going to go to Ahab, and you're going to front him up about what he's been doing in my country in my, with my people. And Ahab does not like that. But understand, these are two completely, meaning Ahab and Elijah represent Two completely different worldviews. Ahab is a, is a worldly kingdom of this world worldview. That's what he is representing in the story, and in his life. Elijah is a kingdom of God, kingdom of God on this earth worldview. And that's the battle that is being waged between the two of them. Now, the reason it says Baal's there, and it's either pronounced Baal or Baal's. It just depends on, on, who you're, on who you're listening to. It doesn't really matter. Um, but he, the Baals, Baal was the, was the storm god or the god of sometimes fertility, like fertility in the land, fertility among people. Um, he was the god that would bring lightning down. He was the god that caused the rain. We'll kind of get to that part of the story and how there hasn't at this point been rain in the land for more than three years. So he's, he's that god. And the reason it's plural there at the end of verse 18, Baals, is because they were polytheistic. Like one Baal wasn't enough, so they had multiple Baals. They had multiple. Now, now when we get to, so if we keep, so if we look at that and we say, like, like this is this 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 these competing worldviews, one is worldly, Ahab the Ba'als, one is godly, Elijah and Yahweh. The question then leads us to, and that's our second talking points question, which perspective has most of your attention? Now I'm not asking you to say this out loud. I'm asking, just think about this for a minute. Which of these perspectives has most of your attention moment by moment? Be honest. The Ahab, this kingdom worldview, or the Elijah, God's kingdom worldview? Just stop and think about that for a minute. And then what I want you to do is I want you to write down some things Within this wrong worldview, this, the, the world's worldview, that have too much of your time and attention. So, what are the things of this world that have too much of your time and attention? i mean, write them down on your three by five card. If you have, guys, if you have to, I'm, I'm not gonna read these, at the, I'm not collecting these and reading them at the end of the session. Right, if you have to, if you if you're not comfortable because there's some stuff here, you're feeling convicted by the Spirit to really give to the Lord, but you maybe don't want the person sitting next to you. Then one, stop looking at your at your neighbor's card, right? Stop cheating, and two, just hide your card. Like like this needs this this these moments that we're gonna have like four or five of them throughout this message. These need to be between you and the Lord moments for them to be any, in any way worthwhile. So what has, what things of this world have too much of your attention? They might not even be bad things. In fact... Most of the stuff, like if you've ever read um, C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, it's a story that's written about like the the um, Satan and his minions and his demons and how they influence people on the earth and it's um, written from the perspective of the demons. So God is the bad guy and 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 the and the devil is the good guy in the story. It's a great read if you've never read it. I encourage you to read it. But but one of the things like that that the chief demon says to the to the underling is he says you know once they're in like once they're in God's kingdom our job is to just keep them distracted, just distract them. That's our job. And he's really, really good at it. Okay, so let's keep going. So our, our, what, what informs our worship, our lives, what we're giving our lives to, is our perspective that affects the decisions that we make. Right, It's impacting our decisions. So now let's look at where we see that in this passage. So go back to 1 Kings 18, look at verse 19. Now therefore, send and gather all... So this is Elijah talking. He says, now therefore, send and gather all, to all Israel. So the ten tribes to, the, to Mount Carmel was a mountain in the northern part of, of, of Israel where... Oh, by the way, it was, it, was like, it was like the bedroom of Baal. So this was Baal's home turf. This was the primary place they would worship Baal. So Elijah's like, I'm willing to come to enemy territory... In, to Mount Carmel, and and you bring four hundred and fifty prophets of Baal and four hundred prophets of Asherah. Asherah was the female fertility goddess, was supposed to be like Baal's like mistress, I guess is what is the way it would work. And and um, all who eat at Jezebel's table. Jezebel is Ahab's wife, and 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 he she's the one that really brought this Baal worship in. But understand this: this is now eight hundred and fifty pagan prophets pagan priests pagan pastors up against one pastor of god elijah now one we have to remember this one because some of you feel that way in your schools some of you feel that way in your place of work it's like one against the world one with god is a majority remember that one with god is a majority we're going to see that in the story as long as you're on God's side, you are always in the majority. But guys, these 850 pagan pastors didn't come from the pagan people. They came from God's people who converted to idol worship. Get that. These are not just like people from the culture who came in and said, okay, I, they are people who were professing, Yahweh at some point in their lives who have now said no we're going to follow the Baals and we're going to become part of their worship and now they're worshiping the Baals and then it says in verse 20 so Ahab sent all the people of Israel um, sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets to Mount Carmel and that's like I said that's the sacred place of the people Now now look at verse 21. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, and this is the key to the whole passage, how long will you go limping between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. And if it's the balls, then follow him. But stop trying to put one foot in one world and one foot in the other. He's like, he gathers all of these people to the enemy territory, and he says, guys, how long will you just keep wavering? It's like Peter walking on the water. Jesus says, come. Peter walks out of the boat. The minute he gets his eyes off of the word of God and onto the world, he starts to sink. Why? Because he becomes the double-minded man James James talks about. In James 1, it says, if any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like the waves of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must suppose that he, will receive, he won't will receive anything from the Lord, because he's double-minded in all his ways. It's saying, guys, if... What, what Elijah's fronting those people up with and what he's fronting us up with right now, what God's word, not Doug, is not my message. This is God's message. It's right out of his word. How long will you go on limping between two opinions? If God is God, follow him. Otherwise, don't. But don't pretend. Jesus makes it really clear when he talks, at the end of the story in Revelation, when when he comes back and he gives the message to the churches and the seven churches that are representative of the church in the world today, and, and most of them don't get a very positive message, and he makes really clear what he says. like The worst group of people to Jesus are the people who profess his name and whose hearts are cold. You are lukewarm and I spit you out of my mouth. That's that's Jesus talking, guys. That's not Doug. That's not the church. That's not moralism. He's saying, if you're mine, you will be hot-hearted towards the king. Your life will worship me, my kingdom. And if not, <laughs> I have nothing to do with you. Guys, we're going to see that in chapter seven when we get back to Matthew next week, where Jesus is really clear about what he says to people who profess him but don't really follow him. There's no middle ground. And, guys, understand what's at stake here is everything. Right? Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 6, a long time ago, lay up for yourselves and treasures in heaven. In Mark, he says that what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And yet we're running around, guys, even I want to provide for my family and I wanna and I wanna lay up my 401k and I wanna whatever your thing is, and I'm gonna pursue all these things. And guys, at the end of the day, it will not matter at all. When people told me 20, something year, 20 years ago that I was crazy for leaving education and the retirement system that, that you know, public education had, and I could have retired a few years ago with my 80 points and been done. They're like, you're nuts, man. You're going to, you're going to do ministry where there's no retirement plan. There's no health insurance. There's no, you're, you're, that's, that's your plan. And I'm like, yeah, because that's the truth. Because at the end of the day, all that matters is what we do for Jesus. Everything else, when we get to that place that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians, is gonna burn. And all that's gonna be left on that plate is what we did for him. And I would take none of it back for me or my family. Because although it's, never, it's not been the easy road, it's been the glorious road. And, and we haven't even gotten a glimpse of all the glory that is to come. Guys, give your lives to the kingdom things. You will never regret it. All of the disciples died badly. All of them. And not a one of them would say it was a mistake to follow Jesus. All of them would say it was way more than worth it. And I had no idea at the time. And they walked with him. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 22 Elijah said, I, even I, am the only one left of the prophets of the Lord, but all prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it into pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call on the name of your God, and I'll call on the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And, the, and all the people said, sounds like a plan. Sounds good to me. They finally speak up. They don't speak up when he challenges them. When he says, how long are you going to waver between two opinions? They're all quiet. They're all like. But now he's got this plan. And here's the thing. They're on Baal's mountain. Baal is the god of lightning. He's the god of rain. He's the god of fire. And they're like, oh, Elijah has no idea what he just got himself into. There's 450 of us. There's one of him. He's actually walking right into our trap. Is what they're thinking at this point. So they're like, hey, "Well, sounds like a great plan to me." Look at your talking, your third talking point's question: What informs and transforms our decisions? What should because here's what happened. If you go back to verse, if you go back, if you go back to verse 21, where it says, "And the people did not answer a word." Guys, making no decision is a decision. If you're sitting here today and you're not a follower of Christ or you're listening online because you're sicker or wherever you're hearing the sound of this voice right now, if you're sitting here going, I am not quite ready to make a decision for Christ, you have just made a decision for Christ. If you're sitting here today as a Christian and you're going, yeah, but, I, but I'm not ready to give up this this thing this besetting sin or this idol of my life or just reorganize my priorities. I'm not yet there, That's, but I'm going to make that decision someday. That's a decision. Own it. Just own it. That's all I'm asking. That's all he's saying. So the question becomes, if we're supposed to own our decisions, because God will hold us accountable for that, God is saying, two worldviews here, Ahab and Elijah, two worldviews here, the people that are going to follow God and the people that are going to follow the Baals, two worldviews here, the people that are going to worship the Lord and the people that are going to worship idols, which one are you going to do? I'm going to hold you accountable for that decision. That's the reality. And he's saying, so which one is it going to be? So, what should inform that decision, the decisions we make? What should I'm asking out loud quickly? The Bible, the Word of God. What else? Counsel, Counsel. godly counsel. It's why we gather, hopefully with people that are going to bring the Word of God to bear in the conversation. But what does inform our our decisions so often? Follow our hearts. Man, Disney's been pumping that for 70 years. Right? What else? What? The media. The media. Like, social media. That's, that's all, guys. Social media is the biggest discipler in the world. By far. It is. When you're on social media, believer or unbeliever, you are being discipled. So, know that. Own that. R- protect your heart from that. But that's the reality. We need to keep moving. So, what, wh- so, our worship is informed and therefore transformed by our perspective that impacts the decisions we make and determines where we place our passions. Now, look at what these guys do as, as part of their uninformed, misplaced, or bad decision causes them to misplace their passion. Look at verse 25. It says, then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one of the bulls and prepare it first. So he's like, you know what? I'm gonna let you go first. Like, like I want you to pick the best bull just so, because I don't want you to come back later and go, well, the reason our God didn't answer was because you made us take the bull with the blemish. He said, you pick the bull you want. You, you, go, you go at the early part of the day. I'm gonna give you all day to do what you think you need to do. And you call in the name of your God, but don't put any fire under, under the altar. And they took the bowl, and they'd given them, and they prepared it, and they called on the name of, the, of Baal from the morning until noon. For, so for several hours they prayed, O Baal, answer us. And there was no voice, and no one answered, and they limped around the altar that they had made. Now, isn't that interesting that he uses the same words there? because they're putting their passion in the wrong place because they made the wrong decision to worship the wrong thing. And when we trust in the wrong things, we're going to because we're not going to get any answer, but here's here's what we're going to see. When when our when the when the idol that we have put our faith in, our trust in in that moment or in our lives doesn't meet our needs, we double down on idol worship. And we're going to see that. We don't just go, "Oh no, I'm sorry." Guys, here's the way Paul puts it in Galatians chapter 5, getting carried away with our emotions. This is, this is a believer problem also, because he's writing to the church. And he says, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, and the results, are, the results are very clear. So he's saying, when you follow your flesh, here's what happens. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. And then he says, and let me, let me make clear to you, church, that as I did before, that everyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. These are the people that are professing faith in Christ that are not, that are not worshiping. They're not actually living for Christ. So does that define us? I'm not asking for an answer out loud. Does that define our church, this church, Does that define you or the rest of that passage? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against these things there is no law. Does that define us? Does that define this church? Do those things, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, do they define your life? I loved what you guys prayed during the prayer time because I hear a heart that wants that to be true, and that's what God wants. He wants us. Because he, he's not. He he is not expecting perfection. How do we know that? Because of that. The only perfect one had to die because He knows we cannot be perfect, but He does want our passion to be placed in Him. So then it says in verse twenty-seven. And at noon, Elijah mocked them. Cry out loud. They have been crying out loud for like the whole day. For he, is, for he is God, small g God. Either he's musing, so he's off thinking about something, or he's relieving himself, so he's in the bathroom, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and you must awaken him. So he's mocking them because their God is not showing up to meet their needs. And what we're gonna see is they're gonna double down on trying to awaken him so, so he baits them into seeing the idols of their heart. Guys, look at your second, your your next talking points questions. Number four. What is it that gets people passionate? Like what fires people up in the church and in our culture? I'm out like out loud. What are some things that get that people are naturally passionate about? Politics, oh boy. We'll just leave that one there for now. We'll come back to that a lot in the summer and the fall, I have no doubt. But for now, let's just leave that there. Politics, massive. Sports. Sports. Guys, gentlemen, don't tell me you can't sing during our time of music. Don't tell me you can't raise your hands during our time of music. Don't tell me you can't pray passionately. Because when your team isn't winning, you're like, oh, or your team scores a touchdown. You get up off your couch and you're like... Yeah! Right? There's a whole lot of passion there. So, why can't we do that about Jesus? You know why? Because football's more important. I'm just going to call it what it is, guys. It's the truth. It is. Guys, what we fixate on, we migrate towards. What we what we what we fill our minds with? Our sports scores. Our some of you can't memorize. I can't memorize scripture. Baloney! You know how I know? Because you can tell me the stats of your favorite quarterbacks. What would you like? What is that? I'll tell you what that is. It's misplaced worship. Because I'm a sports guy too. It completely grieves me, inappropriately so, that the suns stink, even with the big three. But i got to keep it where it is. And when I go, man, the sun's lost again, and that affects my mood, like actually my mood, oh my. Like that that should scream, idle, 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 idle. When you left your phone at home to run to the store, and you're just completely freaked out? Like, what am I going to do without being connected for just a few minutes? Idle, 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 idle. So here's what I want you to do. Write down some things that have grabbed too much of your emotions of late. I'll try to calm down. Nothing else, my throat hurts now. So our worship is informed and thus transformed by our perspective that impacts the decisions we make. It determines where we place our passions. And here's the thing, it affects how we see God working in the world. Because what I see more and more all the time Are Christians that are wandering away from the church are Christians that are wandering away from Christ because they just don't see him working and I think they have it backwards I think it's I think they're so busy look we are so busy looking at other stuff thinking about other stuff worshiping other stuff that there's no room to see God working Elijah sees God work because he has a singular focus so one guy standing up against 850 really sees God do an amazing thing because he has the eyes to see it. Look at verse 30. Elijah said to all the people, Hey, huddle up. Come here. And all the people came near to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been that had been torn thrown down. And Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to him. Um, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. Now, guys, get this. That isn't just some weird, what's with the 12 stones? Guys, understand, Elijah is sending a message. He's like, here, here's our problem. Division is our problem. It wasn't, because he's speaking to a group of 10, 10 tribes, the 10 northern tribes. But he doesn't put 10 stones up. He puts 12. Because he's saying, here's the problem. Our problem went all the way back to when Rehoboam made a bad decision, and Jeroboam took the ten northern tribes with him. Because God is a God of unity, and there's division and weakness. So he puts the twelve stones there to go, guys. This was the plan, and the stones he built with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, verse thirty-two, and he made a trench for the altar and and as as great as would contain. Two sheaves of seed. And he put the wood on the altar and the bowl and the pieces he laid on it in the wood. And then he says, fill four jars of water and pour it on the burnt offering of the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. Now, guys, understand this. At this point in their lives, water is their most precious commodity. It hasn't rained for three years. Israel is an arid land like like Arizona, Three years out water, he's saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have you take your most precious commodity. Oh, by the one, the one that you say Baal is the one responsible for bringing because he's a God of rain. And I'm going to have you dump it on the altar of God. I'm going to have you p- put it right here. I'm going to have you lay it all down. And then look at verse, I don't remember where I left you off. left us. So then look at verse 35. He says, and the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with the, with the altar or with, with water. So, this this whole thing is just soaked, right? The land is the only wet spot in their whole world is the spot around Elijah's altar that he has built. And then it says in verse 36 and at the time of the offering of of oblation, which just means the evening offering, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God, and I am your servant. And that I have done all these things at your word. He's, I, I loved how, I didn't know Scott was going to do this, but I loved how he led us into the prayer time about the chair idea. Elijah's just talking to God like he's talking to, you know, it's not a big fancy elaborate prayer, he's, but he's, he's having a conversation with God, focused on the power of God, based on the word of God. That's where the power comes from. He's saying, let it be known that you are God. And that I am yours. And that all of this that I'm doing is because you've told me to. And watch and see what happens in that moment. It says, and then fire, the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, the wood and the stones and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. So guys, fire fell from heaven. Now, the Bible talks in many places about this idea of fire symbolizing God. Now remember, Baal is the god of rain. He's the god of lightning, and here comes fire from the God from, from the Lord, right? And in this, and it lights up the altar, lights laps up all the water. But because it's it's a picture of the presence of God. How does God appear to Moses in Exodus three? In a burning bush. How does God lead the people through the desert at night in Exodus thirteen through twenty? A pillar of fire by night. Right? How does God show up to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6? These flaming seraphim. It's all a picture of the spirit of the living God. Guys, how does God show up at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2? Flames of tongues of fire falling on God's people. This is just all a picture of the presence of God and the power of God because he is there. Guys, but understand, so, so then let's just finish up this passage and we'll, and we'll kind of start wrapping this up. This is the fire of the Lord consumed the burnt offering of the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water of the trench. And all the people saw it and they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And, I, and Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. And they gathered up the prophets and they slaughtered them there. So now they see the presence of God show up. And it, and it moves them to repentance. And that repentance moves them to action. They kill hundreds of people. Probably not something we ought to be moved to today. But guys, understand this. There is an eternity of difference. An eternity of difference in belief, in hearing God's word and going, yeah, that seems reasonable. That sounds like a good plan. And hearing the word of God, having it pierce your heart because of the spirit of God and moving you to repentance and action for God. That's what we see happening here. That is the difference between being a nominal Christian, someone who says they're a Christian and not, and being an on-fire, spirit-filled believer in Jesus. It's what do you do with the word when you hear the word? Does it move you to repentance? Does it move you to action? Or do you just go, yeah, that sounds, that's a good plan. The reason they had seen, guys, get this. If you're a follower of Christ, if you're a spirit filled person, that means the fire of God has fallen on you. Like we see the scene in a light and we go, man, if I had, a, if I, guys, but yeah, but if I was there, if I'd have seen that happen, I would say, the Lord, He is God, the Lord, He is God, and I would give everything in my life to God. Guys, if you're a follower of Christ, you've seen more. That pot fire has fallen on you and I. And, and it ought to move us to go, the Lord, He is God, the Lord, He is God, and I'm going to give my life to Him as a spiritual service of worship, is what Paul tells us. So look at your, last talk, your second to last talking points. There's just two more. They go quickly. How have you seen God work in your life? So Elijah sees God work in, his, in his, through him because he has the eyes to see it. How have you seen, maybe, maybe you've forgotten the times you've seen God work in your life. Write a few of them down. Write down a few things that you've seen where God has shown up in your life. So that's the end of our reading that we were supposed to read today, but it's not the end of the story. In fact, you're going to continue reading the end of the story, in 1 Kings 19 as part of your daily reading. But I I want to share with you what, what I would call the epilogue. So the prologue of this whole story that I didn't really talk much about was, at the very beginning of chapter 17, Elijah says to Ahab, Hey, it's not going to rain here until I say so. I don't care about your Baal. I don't care that he's the God of of rain. I don't care what you think. I don't care what your wife thinks she's going to do by getting all these, for for the next three years, getting all these false prophets to start praying about rain and cutting themselves and and doubling down on on how they can get his attention and all the things that we've already looked at. He says, I don't care about any of that. It will only happen when God tells me to tell you at his word it will rain. So all this happens, They they slaughter the prophets, I'm sure Ahab's like, oh my goodness, I can't tell my wife this happened, because she is a nut job, and she's going to come hunting for Elijah. You'll read about that this week. But, but look at verse 41. It says, to Elijah said to Ahab, get up and drink, for there is the sound of rushing rain. Wait a minute, it hasn't rained for three and a half years. Like, the ground is completely dead. I mean, this place is Desolate. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself below, um, down on the earth, and he put his face between his knees. Now, that's praying, especially as an old dude. And it makes my back hurt just thinking about it. And he said to his servant, go up now and look at the sea. And he went up and looked and said, there's nothing, no clouds. And he said, go again, seven times he bowed down. Seven times he sent the kid, seven times nothing. He says, on the seventh time, behold... A little cloud, like a man's hand, is rising from the sea. And he said, go up, say to Ahab, you better prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. Because it doesn't rain for three and a half years, and when the rain hits that ground, it's going to turn into a lot of mud, and you've got a ways to go. And it says, in a little while, the heavens grew black, and the clouds and the wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah and he gathered up his garment and he ran before Ahab. So he outran a chariot to the entrance of Jezreel. That's 17 miles from where he was. That's a work of God right there. But guys, think about this. When God says it's going to rain, it's going to rain. Right? At the word of God, it rained. But guys, understand this. The reason it happened just then was because here's what Elijah showed. Your God Baal is like the land that you say he's in charge of. He's dead. Elijah killed their idol. Didn't stop him from worshiping him, but he he visibly killed their idol, and it started to rain. So the question becomes for you and I, what idols do we need to kill to see God reign? And I mean R-E-I-G-N. Guys, what idols in your life do you need to kill to see God reign? Because he's a jealous God. Because I get that this is a heavy mess. I've been praying for this because I I didn't want my first message back after a couple weeks off to just be like, but guys, this is the word of the Lord. There are only two kingdoms in the world. There is this kingdom that is ruled by the God of this world, not out of the control of God, God, but, but Satan prowls around and he is in every earthly endeavor, every worldly endeavor he is a part of, except for one, and that's the church, and that's why he hates us so much, and that's why he's trying to divide us all the time, and that's why he's always attacking Christians, because he, it's the one part of the world he doesn't have dominion over, because as Christians, we have been transferred into the other kingdom. We are kingdom people meant to live by kingdom power for kingdom glory. And too often we live like Lazarus, who has been raised from the dead, but is still bound up in his grave clothes. Do you remember what happens in that story? You're gonna read about it this week. But God, Jesus calls Lazarus to life. And he comes, he comes out of the tomb. and, And Jesus is like, well, unbind the dude. Let him go. I didn't bring him to life to have him live bound. But too many of us are living bound. You know why? Because we got our eyes on the wrong kingdom. Because there's no part of you as a Christian that the enemy can touch. No part. It is finished. Victory. Assured. We just gotta live like it. But but part of that process is acknowledging the areas of this kingdom that we're still way too alive to so that we'll start living more and more for this kingdom because the time is short, eternity's long, hell is still hot, but God is still saving sinners, people. Right? The gospel is still going forward. Jesus is not losing. So let's live like it. So as the music team comes up, I'm going to ask you just to take some time. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to just spend some time reflecting and responding. And, and, and what that response can look like is what I would invite you to do is to take your card and put it up here on our prayer wall if you feel led. If you don't, that's okay too. But I want to encourage you to, to do some business with the Lord. Like, don't just be the people in that first scene where, where they're like, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that sounded good, Pastor. Great message. Great message, Pastor. Good job. Yeah, I, I really, people really needed to hear that today. No, you do business with the Lord right now. Let me pray. Father God, I thank you for um, who you are. I thank you that you are a God that invites us into relationship with you and that you made that possible by dying on a cross. Lord, I thank you that when you said it is finished, that meant once for all. There is no longer the power of sin and death. Its presence still remains, but its power has been defeated. The enemy knows that, and that's why he hates us. So let us live in the power of the Almighty. Let us live the reality that your fire has fallen upon us. Let us put away the things of this world. Let them grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace, the song says. And let us just see you as better, because you are. Father, I pray for the people that are hearing my voice right now, that we, that we would remember that we are fully known, deeply loved, and completely victorious in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.